God did not fashion an it in the Garden of Eden. Nor did He hand out a manual to help His creatures determine their sexual orientation. God created man as male and female. Adam was a man to the core of his being, and Eve was a woman. And every child born into this world is born male or female as the result of a procreative act between a man and a woman, accepting, of course, some medical interventions. But when God brought Eve to Adam, Adam rejoiced, and so he should. This woman, this exquisite gift from God, was delivered into Adam's arms so the first couple could enjoy the delights of physical intimacy. So God proposed from the beginning that one man and one woman would unite in marriage and live together in covenantal fidelity to one another until they were parted by death. Their one flesh relationship was God's purposeful design to bless Adam and Eve. To bless them with the delights of lifelong fidelity and mutual trust in marriage. To be, as the text of Scripture says, naked with one another and unashamed. Now, in this fallen world, there are innumerable ways that people violate our Creator's design for sexual intimacy and fidelity between a husband and a wife. We inhabit a world in which sexual gratification has been widely severed from any sense of God's design, of God's law, of God's blessing. There is no connection there anymore for many people. But as God's people, in light of God's creative design and goodness, sexual intimacy is an aspect of life that we must master. We relate to this differently, depending on who we are, depending on the circumstances of life that surround us, but it is a moral skill that God desires to give to His people, desires for them to develop. It involves spiritual discernment, and so handling our sexuality to the glory of God is a calling upon every one of us uniquely where we are. Again, we will relate to this topic differently, but to this end, we need to apply ourselves to a pointed lesson from the counsel of our Heavenly Father that we find in Proverbs 5. If you'll make your way there to Proverbs 5 as we continue our series through this book, we come to this text of Scripture, to this particular aspect of the instruction that God gives us in this word, remembering the immediate context of the father speaking to a young son. And of course, this is a very vital topic as this individual is being nurtured and developed. He's a young, virile son, and he needs this instruction. But the father's instructions, we will note here, to this young man is not prudish in any way. You will find nothing here of this stereotypical Christian who is squeamish about sex or deems it a profane topic that's not to be discussed. To the contrary, sexuality is a realm in which our fidelity to God is displayed. And when we see that and understand not only our lives but those around us in this context, there there are certainly other realms But sexuality is a crucial one in our sanctification. The father has touched on this subject back in chapter 2, if you remember that, as he was warning his son against getting involved sexually with a woman who is not his wife. But here he addresses the matter with full vigor. The topic begins with the characteristic call to heed counsel, verse 1 of chapter 5, "'My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding.'" that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Is there anything new there? Not at all as we've worked our way through the book of Proverbs. The Father and ultimately God our Father looks us straight in the eye and pleads with us to heed His counsel. He calls us to listen to Him in a world that is screaming another message. Hear what I have to say. This is of utter importance as are all the lessons of the Father in the book of Proverbs. 
He wants the young man, we notice here, to guard knowledge with his lips. Keep discretion and your lips that your lips may guard knowledge. The lips are to guard knowledge. That is, the Father wants the Son to be able to speak wisely, to articulate the truth. How do lips regard anything? Well, it's, it's, it's meant as, an, as a reference to speech. So He wants Him to talk in a certain way. And I think there's some real wisdom here in that if you cannot courageously articulate God's counsel in the face of temptation you're not properly equipped to withstand it. We need to be able to speak, to articulate, to present a position on every area of life and against every temptation. So imagine a person comes up to you and seeks to lure you into an illicit relationship. There's this encounter on some level. Given the opportunity, what would you say? Son, says the Father, I want you to be able to articulate the truth, to speak it, to present that position. What would you say? What would you say in that situation? How could you argue? What could you say that would not sound needlessly offensive on the one side? Get out of my way, you filthy scumbag from the devil. You disgust me utterly, or something like that. But that doesn't get anywhere at all. You can offend someone needlessly. But on the other hand, to not offer some weak excuse, a cop-out, a mumbling escape, what would you say? How would you articulate the truth on which you stand? I want your lips to keep knowledge, says the Father. What you could articulate in such a situation says a lot about the condition of your heart. Now this word lips springs, uh, it springboards and links thematically with the Father's instructions of the kind of speech that we must learn to actually avoid, verse 3. And here we enter into the first of two larger sections of the teaching, living with moral skill in the face of sexual seduction. Verses 3 through 14 deals with that topic of how to avoid. In verses 15 and following, it turns to the more positive emphasis on what to pursue. We note here living with moral skill in the face of sexual seduction in this world. Verse 3, he then warns, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. He presents here a case study, an individual that stands for a whole realm of relationships. We find here in verse 3, the forbidden woman. The Hebrew uh, is a strange woman, might be the better way to translate it. She's a woman who is a stranger to God's covenant, or she's estranged from her husband, or more simply, she's a woman who's not your wife. She's a stranger in that sense of the word. doesn't mean somebody you've not, maybe never met. But she's a stranger, not in the literal sense, but in the sense that she is outside the man's circle of intimacy, a circle of two. What is she like? What is this woman like? What do we see here? Her seductive speech is like the sweetest drippings of honey from the comb. Her, sweet, her, her speech is as smooth as olive oil, oozing with seductive delights. Her words mesmerize and they can melt away a young man's resistance. She is, the father assures his son, as easy to hear as she is to look at. The Father expresses wisdom. This woman's speech, though sensually charming, will lead the young man off into a very different direction. Far afield from the Father's wise counsel. So as verse 4 says, what we need to understand where this is leading is that her end is like the bitterness of wormwood. It starts as indescribably sweet. It ends in horrific bitterness. 
wormwood tea, whether from a root or from a leaf, it won't kill you. You just drink it and wish you were dead. It's, it's horrible stuff. It's what starts then as smooth as oil ends in a burning agony, not unlike the penetrating, searing wound of a sword. It goes in easily, but its end has a bite and a sting. Her feet, verse 5, go down to hell. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of her life. Notice that word there, ponder, in verse 6. It links back to chapter 4 and verse 26. Same word, translated ponder there. Watch the path of your feet. Make sure you're making the right journey in the right way. She doesn't do that. She's not concerned at all about where life is leading. And again, I just, I'll keep adding these editorial comments, but turn it your way. This she might be a he. This he might be older. This she might be younger or older. It, it, depending on who you are, we, we can fill in the blanks. We're not all young men here, but there is a message to the end that such, where such a person leads. The bitterness of Wormwood the piercing of a sword, steps that lead down to the realm of death. This is a very pointed warning. Death here, I think, should be taken as a way of life. It's an orientation toward moral destruction. Her way of life has death written all over it, so to speak. One author says this, sexual non-restraint kills. It kills the body, it kills marriage, it kills friendships, it kills relationships with one's children, it kills fellowship, it kills spiritual vitality, it kills sensitivity to God, it is death. That's the warning. So implicitly, get caught up with her and you will be hitching a ride to ruin. The principle, of course, applies to more than what we see here to just this young man but every one of us in our state needs to take this into account and to know that where there is such solicitation on any level there is a pull away to a culture and an orientation of death what we must know about the seductress very beautiful on the front end very bitter on the other side at the end. How must we respond to such temptation? We take up at verse 7. The response, And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. There's great wisdom here. The proper response is described here in verses 7 and 8. Sexual temptation is like a strong magnet. The closer that you get to it, the stronger the pull. Stay away from it. Stay clear of that magnetizing force. There is a kind of person and a type of circumstance and situation where the only answer is to steer clear. We see this in the example of Joseph uh, so ably brought out in the book of Genesis with Potiphar's wife. There was an ongoing solicitation there, but when things came to the point of decision, Joseph did not sit around and try to win her to the ways of Yahweh. He ran out of the house. He left. And wisdom is knowing when it is right to speak for God and when it is right to leave someone in the dust and to move past. And those solicitations take place in our life on a screen, on a page, in person. They're there. We need to realize that there are times when we must run. We must leave and avoid. Don't go near the door of her house in that setting where the prostitute would do business, was on the street with an open door calling people off the street into her place. Don't go there. Don't walk past. Stay clear is the instruction. And why? The motivation for this response, verse 9, here it is. I mean, it, it, this is just straightforward. It's, it's a warning 
that says, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Sexual sin drains your life. That's the point. There's something to gain momentarily from an illicit relationship, but that's not where it's going to end. There's much more to lose. You lose your honor to those who correct you. You sacrifice esteem in their eyes. You're treated mercilessly by those who despise you, perhaps because you hurt them in the process. Your life energies are expended. Your wealth for which you've labored, that's the idea of laboring there, what you've labored for, tends to end up in the pockets of other people. It gets passed on to the prostitute, to the producer of pornography, to, the, to pregnancy, perhaps to sexual disease, and on it goes. You will be hurt. There's no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality drains the body. It does not invigorate at the end of the day. It exhausts, it, ex it consumes flesh and body. That's his point. Very graphic, very straightforward. You will groan and your flesh and your body will be consumed with a heaviness that comes. Know this. Be wise. Be warned. Properly strategize. So sexual sin drains your life, verses 9 through 11. Sexual sin produces deep regret, verses 12 and following. This also a result. And you will say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is the agonized cry of the sexually promiscuous person. What have I done? Parents are speaking. Teachers are speaking. There's the wisdom of God's Word. What have I done? Why did I not listen? We listen to this young person who has yielded to the sweet delights of sexual pleasure. And now we listen to him. And do listen, young people. Do listen, single adults. Do listen, couples. Hear him. The agonized, traumatized soul weeping alone in the dark. What have I done? Why did I not hear? What took place privately under the cover of night is eventually revealed, and then it is broadcast before the assembled congregation. Verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I didn't listen, verse 13, to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. Now, what was a public conversation, rejected privately, now becomes something I'm suffering publicly. Probably in the context of that day, uh, calling to account this individual before this, the village council at the city gate. In the assembled congregation, here to hear the suit against me because of my relationship in adultery. Today, it's the public square. We see it played out in our newspapers even recently, haven't we? Still, as much as we don't care about sexuality and what people do in this culture... People are still held to account in the public square. Careers are ended. Damage is done. Families crumble. But I think also we could certainly draw, at least by way of application, a reference here to exer the exercise of corrective church discipline. In the assembled congregation, I am in utter ruin. What I have done privately is now public. And I have to face the consequences of my decisions to reject the counsel of others. House and Durham in their book Living Wisely said, when it comes to sexual sin, it's payday someday. People talk. Husbands find out. Reporters snoop. 
pregnancies happen, disease spreads, guilt builds, and God works. More on that in a moment. But the negative instruction of verses 3 through 14 is not certainly meant to create a vacuum. It's pretty clear, it's straightforward. The Father's not being gentle in this matter, and and God our Father is speaking to us, warning us, be careful here. But it's not meant to create a vacuum. Sexual immorality is wrong and to be avoided at all costs, but the instructions now move to the positive, to the way of God's wise counsel and creative design. Verses 15 and following. So we have this first major consideration of the warning and now the instruction, positively, beginning at verse 15. And we, we start with this statement, living with moral skill in relationship to sexual satisfaction. Verses 15 through 17, each one should drink exclusively from his own well. That's the positive instruction and the guidance this father is giving to his son. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Here's the moral imperative. The ancient Near East, you get water one of two ways. It didn't come in plastic bottles, I can tell you that. But you, you had the village well, the public well you could draw from. Or you might, if wealthy enough and able enough, might have a private well uh, that was that, there, yours. Or at least a cistern that would collect uh, runoff rainwater. That's where they got their water. And with that background here, he's saying, pretty clear what he's talking about, Drink from your own well. Don't drink from the public well. Drink from your well. Gain satisfaction there. So the Father speaks here of marital intimacy as a fountain of pure and satisfying refreshment that does not leave behind the sting of regret or shame. Now obviously the marital bed can certainly be corrupted, that's to be understood, but sex calibrated to God's creative design is a beautiful gift, a satisfaction God welcomes us to enjoy. It was His idea. The rationale here of drinking from one's own cistern, enjoying that refreshment within the confines of God's purposes, verse 16, the rationale... Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Many take verse 16 as a positive thing, but it's really difficult to do that when you look at verse 16. I think the understanding, or verse 17, the understanding of verse 16, I think is a negative understanding. Should your springs be scattered abroad? The idea here is of one's sexual vigor. Should that be showing itself in the public realm? Should it be dissipating out there in the village with immoral women? No, rather, verse 17, let them be for yourself alone. That is, within the context of marriage. God's design. Keep it there. Each one should drink exclusively from his own well. Secondly, each one should satiate himself at his own well. So it's an exclusive idea, but it's also a call to delights. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. The deer and the doe, ancient cultures used animal imagery for sexual pleasures. We notice that the emphasis falls here on pleasure, not procreation. It's a significant thought and consideration here as God reveals this to us. The emphasis is on pleasure, not procreation. As important as children often are to marriages, that's not the emphasis here. If we see sex biblically, we will understand that it dishonors God to take this pleasurable gift for granted, to become bored with it, or to fantasize about having a partner other than one's mate, to express this aspect of our sexuality in a way that is displeasing to our Creator. God's design is for a husband and wife to find delight in one another's body. And I know these things are private matters. God knows they're private matters. They're in Scripture. I think pointedly, he speaks here of frequency. Let your fountain be blessed. 
You don't find a fountain that's blessed as you go down to draw water and it's dry. The blessing of a fountain means that it flows. There's a frequency there. Secondly, there's a delight there that is very obvious. Rejoice in this. In fact, be intoxicated. I think it's a good translation of the Hebrew word, which can be translated variously, but be intoxicated with this. God's creative marital love is to intoxicate, to sweep married couples up in ecstasy and satisfy sensual thirst. That's why God gave it. And so it is rebellion against God's goodness that leads one to pursue such sensual pleasures outside of marriage. And here's where we realize how utterly broken we are. Utterly broken. We hear of these intimate conversations and words, and we don't want to hear it. But yet there's this drive and temptation to be drawn off privately into all kinds of ways outside of the will of God. There is a natural desire that is there, many times unable to be fulfilled. In fact, in every individual in this world, somewhere along the line, it's not fulfilled. Learning to deal with that craving, learning to deal with those desires, and to steer them and nurture them in the right way, we're broken. And this is one area that God helps us to realize that. What He gives as a a, a tremendous desire to be fulfilled according to His purposes, we don't want to talk about it. And yet we want to pursue things that we shouldn't. Somewhere along the line, we all deal with this on some level. We see God not backing off here, but being very blunt, frank, and inviting. Why, he continues, verse 20, should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? It's leading where I was just making those comments. We turn here to a negative statement in the midst of all of this positive. Why is there that desire to go in a direction that God does not intend? It is our fallenness. It is our sinful response to the goodness, to the mercy, to the kindness of God to track in ways that do not please Him. Wherever we are, old or young, married or unmarried, we, we need to master this area of our lives. Every one of us uniquely. And so embracing the bosom of an adulteress, that is the idea of wrapping your arms around someone that you shouldn't. Boy, in our day, this comes in a lot of ways, doesn't it? A lot of different ways. We deal in a world that is inundated with pornography. We are given to fantasy. Adultery plays out in the public square all the time. This is an area we must get right. And so as the instruction is there, here's the negative, here's the disaster that can come. And then secondly, here's what is right and pleasing in God's sight. As he lays out these two major pieces of the instruction, he concludes with some words of warning. Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. God sees and knows everything. We never escape the eye of God. We never get away with sin, ever. God knows. Verse 22, secondly, sin ensnares. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. It is not getting caught that ensnares us. Notice that. It's not getting caught that ensnares someone. It is sin that ensnares. Sin is its own trap. God sees and knows everything. Sin ensnares. And thirdly, sin intoxicates. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now why did I use the word intoxicate? I want you to focus on that last word of verse 23. The word astray is the same Hebrew word translated intoxicate in verses 19 and 20. 
Why would you be intoxicated under the powerful influence of sexual sin? Why? And that's a question we need to answer. I think the death he speaks of here in verse 23 is not physical death as such, but parallel to going astray in the second part of verse 23. Our culture treats sex outside of marriage as entertainment and freedom of expression. The truth of the matter is, as God speaks to us, the indiscipline of sexual infidelity is a living death played out on the on the pathways that lead to destruction. Well, I don't know. Did, did anybody come here voting for this topic today? I mean, I, I, it, it, it's just, it's not, this is one of the things you deal with as you work your way through a book. I think on some level, just reading this chapter, a pastor might very naturally say, I think we're going to skip that. It's a hard thing to talk about with young and old men and women together. And certainly there are places we can talk about it more pointedly in various settings. And we do as a church. We need to. But I think here this is a very appropriate topic for us because the, th- the, the places where we hide and run from it are probably evidences of our own struggle, our own sin, our own confusion our own maybe wanting not to even think about it. But it's clearly a big deal in God's mind. So whoever you are, whatever your future, we have all heard loud and clear God's will concerning sexuality. It's a major part of who we are. It's a major area of battle and we need to get it right. And having been so warned here today, it would be nothing less than moral rebellion to spurn God's counsel in the future. And you may be, I hope I don't speak to anybody here, but you may be here today saying, how on earth would I ever do such a thing as enter into a physical relationship with someone that's not my mate? I would have no interest in doing that. You have no interest in doing that here there can be a day that comes when there is a a new interest. You may face that temptation far more strongly than you could ever think or be prepared for. So we need to arm ourselves. We need to be ready for that day of temptation when it comes. But guard your heart. Living with moral skill and biblical discernment includes resisting sexual pleasures outside the confines of marriage and rightly appreciating the joys of conjugal intimacy. And wherever we are, whoever we are, that is a challenge. It's a challenge. For married couples, we need to think rightly in these areas. It's part of the health of our marriage. God invented romance. Now, He didn't invent some of the things we do to try to be romantic. I don't know if you're supposed to give flowers or not. I, I don't know what God thinks about that, but we, He invented romance. It was His design. It is good. A gift from His hand if handled properly. But guard your heart against infidelity then in all of its forms. And in our day, there are so many forms. Guard your heart. As couples continue to renew your sense of covenantal fidelity and responsibility to one another and labor to see that your heart does not wander off where it should not. This is a call to us to marital fidelity and faithfulness within that relationship. Now, there's some here who are children, and you're saying, I'm not sure I'm getting all of this, and that's okay. It might be a little confusing right now, but it won't be for very long at all. But just know this, for you who are younger children, if you have a mom and a dad who live together as a husband and wife, 
That is a great kindness of God to you. That is a blessing that He is giving to you in your life. Know that and understand that and appreciate it. And someday, God may allow you to become a husband or a wife. And know that as you're preparing for that, and you might say, that might even sound creepy to you right now. That's okay. It maybe should. But think about someday, if you become a husband or a wife, decide in your heart right now and pray to this end that God will help you to be faithful as a husband or wife. That He will help you to know how to live as a husband or wife someday. Remember that God made you a boy or a girl for a reason. We don't know what that reason is, and we do not know that that means He will have you marry someday, but He made you as He made you. Seek His will. Ask God to prepare you for the future. And if He wants you to get married, ask Him to make you a loyal husband or wife. And if God has been so good to give you a mom and a dad who love each other, I would encourage you once in a while to thank God in prayer. Thank Him that He gave you a mom and a dad. There are other young people here who are very much aware of what I'm saying. You're a bit older. Our teens and those in that range of life haven't thought even for a moment actually about getting married uh, as, a, as a reality, but very much aware of these temptations, very much aware of what's being said here today. You really don't have, there's not a whole lot left for the imagination. I would encourage you, young people and teens, calibrate your views to the Bible. You are being assaulted from this world outside day after day after day to think about male and female in a certain way. Take your wisdom from God's Word. Continue to seek to develop your masculinity or your femininity according to the counsel of God, not according to the words of our world, the directions of our world. Secondly, you face certainly many sexual temptations, maybe some more than others, but this will be a lifelong battle. It will be an area of your life where there will be guilt. It will be an area of your life that you never completely master, but keep making progress. Keep seeking to bring this under the direction of the Lord. Be aware of how to confess sin to be patient as you deal with these drives and as you seek to honor the Lord. Know that it's a battle. That's what it is. A lifelong battle. But fight it faithfully. And don't flirt with it. One of the ways that we can in our culture certainly flirt with it is through dating that is in the wrong sense of the word. Dating in our culture is often little more than a culturally acceptable way to flirt with sexual passions. That's really all that it is in many people's minds. It kind of sanctions it and says, well, if I'm, if I'm oriented to this person or that person, then, then it's okay. But remember that in our culture, that's often what it is. Remember, secondly, that a date may well be someone else's mate someday. And the younger you are, the more likely that's the case. So ask yourself then, why do I want to date? Why do I want to date? I mean, be ruthless with the answer. What is really motivating you here? Are you being motivated to be a better husband or wife? Are you being motivated to truly seek God's partner for your life. Is that what's behind it? I'm not answering the question. I'm just saying ask it. And a- answer that question with the help of the godly counsel that surrounds you. Perhaps parents, perhaps leaders in the church. Don't answer the question on your own in 
2.65 seconds. Yeah, I'm good. But think about it. Ask it honestly. Why do I want to do this? And for all teens, those who that's not a particular battle, I also call you to prayer. Develop the character to be a faithful mate someday, should God intend. Your focus needs to be not on getting someone at this place in your life. Your focus needs to be on becoming someone. Become the person God wants you to be. There is in our congregation here today widows and widowers, those who have lost a mate. This is a great grief and a trial that we want to bear up as a church But it's certainly not a source of pity. It certainly should be a source of thanksgiving for what God has granted. And particularly to my knowledge for those who have all had children in that context to give thanks to God uh, for what He has done. But there are also serious temptations for those that are older and widowed. And I've dealt with those as I've talked to people. It's, I, I have seen people sitting across from me that are old enough to be my parents and maybe almost my grandparents who are talking like they're in their teenage years because they've just met someone. They're as intoxicated and lost as any teenager. This erotic, eros love can be overwhelming. Romantic interest can be intoxicating itself. Be careful there. Don't be drawn in. You have a challenge to remain faithful just as does anyone else who's younger. Seek the will of God. Manage this area of perhaps temptation in your life. Give Him thanks for what He's given. Rejoice, but be careful. Be careful. You can be overwhelmed in a moment of time Nurture the heart attitude on these areas and know what you believe. It may be tested. And then there are among us single adults, those who by now, I speak specifically to those who at this point would say, I would like to be married by now. And I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm plenty old to be married, but I, I'm not. This topic... I think particularly at verses 15 and following, let's acknowledge this can be really hard. This can be a very difficult conversation, a source indeed of discouragement. And I would call you and just just encourage you, make sure that your discouragement is not fueled by jealousy. We look at single adults who would long to be married and we might say that the major temptation is sensual interest. That's not directed in the right way. Certainly is a challenge. But I also think that one of the major challenges is jealousy. Now I say that compassionately. I say that with not an understanding experientially of where you are. But to just say be careful about the temptation to jealousy. When you hear about sexual delights and you would long to experience that, know that there is here a unique calling from God to you to be faithful to His call. And I think one way that we're faithful to that call is to know God has not backed off here and said there's a section of Scripture to be read only by married couples. He lays out these pleasures and these joys knowing that some will not experience them. Does he just hate us? Being mean? No, I think the key is to not become jealous and to say, I want what someone else has. If that woman can be married, why not me? If that guy can find a wife, why can't I? The thoughts, remember last week, preserving the heart, the thoughts can begin to drift off into ways that are destructive. Don't allow jealousy to take root. The orientation, I think, should rather be a celebration of God's good ways. God is a good God. And there are couples in the midst of a loving, faithful, vibrant relationship who rejoice in the goodness of God. There are others on another angle who can also rejoice who've never experienced those joys. 
Because there's something deep inside that says it is good. I know that it's good. And I rejoice in the goodness of God. And I'm thankful that he doesn't withhold that information for those who are married. This is a really bad analogy, but I, th- could we at least start a conversation? I can't quite come up with a better one at this point. But you know, it, for those of you that have a sports team that you cheer for, and you really like when they win, when that team wins the championship, never happens in Minnesota, at least not if you're a football player, but it, it did though, didn't it? Uh, a long time ago with the Twins. But when that happens... Let's say that, that you are a football player, and let's say, we're really fantasizing here, that the Vikings win the Super Bowl. When they win that Super Bowl, are you jealous? Because I was a football player. I wish I was there playing football. You're not jealous. You celebrate with them. You join in, and in a sense, their victory becomes your victory, right? You'd be a one weird fan if you got jealous because they won. And there might be a little bit in your heart saying, I really wish I was there. But you rejoice with them. You celebrate. Your team has won. And I think single adults, there's, there's something perhaps there, at least in a conversation starter, to think of how to celebrate what God has given to others, not to be jealous about it, to be bitter that it's not your experience, but to rather to say, you know what? God is good. He is good. He's a merciful, gracious God whose gifts are beautiful. Certainly keep praying. Keep preparing your heart. Keep developing character. You don't know where God's leading you. You don't know what He's doing. But the joy of marriage, let me tell you, is not the greatest joy in this world. It's not. And I mean to minimize it not at all, but the greatest joy in this world is knowing Jesus Christ. That's it. And he withholds that from no one. The greatest joy is knowing Christ, knowing that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, knowing that as you deal with the suffering of this world, it is preparing for you a greater glory, a weightier glory as you enter into the presence of of Christ. Know that. Trust that. Believe God at His Word. And know that whatever He might, in a sense, withhold, that He will never remain in anyone's debt for all eternity. But something in that process of singleness and dealing with those temptations and dealing with those trials and fighting jealousy in all of that, someday... God's reward will fall on those who faithfully saw that as a process of sanctification and grew through it. So grow in it. Embrace it as a trial, perhaps. As a calling, certainly. But knowing Jesus by trusting in His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is the ultimate joy. Rivers of water that fully satisfy flow from our relationship in Him. Know that walking in sexual fidelity as His child is a source of far greater joy than promiscuity. And it is itself the ultimate delight to obey the Lord. Remember that Jesus died a virgin. Jesus died a virgin. And I guarantee you, no one was ever more fulfilled or joyful that walked this planet than Jesus Christ. Know that. He has an understanding about the trial that you're facing that no one else does. Because He lived through it without sin. He drained every temptation of its force. He's with you. He lived to do the will of His Father. If you do the same, all will be well. Our time passes here. But certainly a word should be said as we close. That as we consider such pointed, 
frank ideas, intimate ideas, that there is certainly in this room high levels of conviction of sin and the need to repent. This is a call from God to turn course. There can be places in your Christian walk where you indeed turn course. A new day. It may not start dramatically on one moment, but a new day of walking in a different direction and hear God's counsel speaking to you in the security of this place away from the voice of this world is a direct call to your heart to change. Do that. Repent. Turn. And all of us, can we not, in light of these truths, can we not hear, stop, and rejoice in the forgiving grace of God? Through His death and through His resurrection, there is good news for sinners. There is the good news that Christ crucified and risen provides the forgiveness of sins. And maybe you need to embrace Him today. And maybe in all of this, the sense of what He's calling you to do as a person is so unimaginable to you. But you can find in Him forgiveness and change. Seek that out in counsel as we leave here today. Pray to that end and labor to that end, asking. And now let us pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we plead for that help. I pray that great sanctifying work would take place, not because of a human sermon, but by Your Holy Spirit working within us to make us what You would have us to be. I pray that here in this place, change would even now be taking place. That there would be courses of action and habit that would be stopped and right and pleasing paths would be taken. I pray that you'll draw to yourself anyone separated from Christ. And I pray for those of us who know you as Savior. Help us to be sanctified and to bring glory to you in this particular area of our lives. God, we know it's all rooted to our heart. And I pray that our heart would belong wholly to you and that you would teach us the beauty and the wisdom of your ways as we learn to walk in obedience. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.